0: Please remain standing for the reading of God's Word. We will uh, skip in sections just for sake of time, and uh, some has already been used. You can find it in your pew Bible on page 404. We will begin in chapter 9, verse 1. We will read 1 through 3 and skip down to verse 9, and we'll get closer to finishing out the chapter. Well, this is God's holy, infallible, inerrant, and authoritative Word. Now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it they made confession and worshiped the Lord their God. The prayer begins in verse 6, but we will pick up in verse 9. And you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of his land. For you knew that they had acted arrogantly against our fathers. And you made a name for yourself as it is to this day. And you divided the sea before them so that they went through the midst of the sea on dry land. And you cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into mighty waters. By a pillar of cloud, you led them in the day and by a pillar of fire in the night to light for them the way in which they should go. You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them right rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments. And you made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them commandments and statutes and a law by Moses, your servant. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst. And you told them to go in to possess the land that you had sworn to give them. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And did not forsake them. Even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, This is your God who brought you out of Egypt and had committed great blasphemies. You and your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by day. Nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way by which they should go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth. And gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness, and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, and their feet did not swell. And you gave them kingdoms and peoples, and allotted to them every corner. So they took possession of the land of Sihon, king of Heshbon, and the land of Og, king of Bashan. You multiplied their children as the stars of heaven, and you brought them into the land that you had told their fathers to enter and possess. So the descendants went in and possessed the land, and you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them into their hand with their kings and the peoples of the land they, that they might do with them as they would. And they captured fortified cities and a rich land and took possession of houses full of good things, cisterns already hewn, vineyards, olive orchards, and fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled, became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. And they committed great blasphemies. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer. And in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you. And you heard them from heaven. And according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. And picking up in verse 34, our kings, our princes, our priests, and our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave them, even in their own kingdom and amid your great goodness that you gave them and in the large and rich land that you set before them. They did not serve you or turn from their wicked works. Behold, we are slaves this day in the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts, behold, we are slaves, and its rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please, and we are in great distress. Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. Let's pray. Our God, we thank you for this truth, and we would ask, speak, O Lord, for your servants are listening. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. The title of the sermon perhaps confused you. A biblical guide to revival. That term revival, I'm sure, is not new to you. It, it's it's a popular term. It's, it's one in which we have many brother and sister denominations who have meetings sometimes once a year, sometimes one week out of the year with a focus of, well, let's proclaim Christ, the excellencies of Christ and trust in the work of God that he might save many. Perhaps it's a work of a revival of revitalization. And those who are a part of his church we want to encourage them in their faith and invigorate them into the mission and work of the church and perhaps you hear that word revival and you think of uh will of billy graham a man who would speak to masses about jesus i was confronted this week i promised i would not reveal the identity of the person but i was confronted and the question was simple do presbyterians have revival yes Yes, we do. Revival is every Lord's Day worship. We have revival every single Lord's Day in which you come into this place to worship God. Do you remember that great truth that David proclaims in Psalm 19? He's talking, he's looking out and he's seeing the grandeur and glory of God in creation and and he turns his focus to the word of God and do you remember what he says in verse seven? The law of the Lord, it's perfect. It revives the soul. Brothers and sisters, we have revival every Lord's day in which we come into this place We open the word of God and we ask again, revive us, O Lord. It's that Hebrew word, kaya, and it means to bring back to life. That's what the word of God does for the people of God when we would sit under it, when we would read it, when we would pray it, when we would confess it, when it is preached to us and we seek to apply it. And God is promising to us in the presence and power of his word, I will revive you. And is that what you came in this morning expecting? Revival. For that is why you should have come to worship and to be revived by the Lord God Himself. Where are we in Nehemiah chapter 9? There's been a little bit of a fast forward. You saw that first verse. Where we're in the 24th day. Last week we were. Well, we skipped around a little bit. We were in the first day, the the second day, the eighth day. And here we are on the 24th day. They've been meeting together at the Watergate. You read those words, you heard them, and you thought perhaps that's what our day will be like today. They stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. That's what Danny's going to do. And you thought it would stop, didn't you? For another quarter of it, they made confession. So we're just getting started. What's happening? The people of God have been in an intense reading of God's word has been preached to them. They've been feasting on it. They've been encouraged not to weep over it. But again, the, the word is being opened to them. And what you see in Nehemiah chapter nine, it's a, it's a prayer. It's the longest prayer, you might say, in the Scripture. And what you're getting from the people of God is, it's revival. They come before the Lord in prayer, and they are revived. And I want to make three observations. What is it that the people of God are doing in this prayer? Number one, they, they confess God. And then they confess their sin. And then lastly, we will look at the confession of commitment. Their confession of God, it begins in verse six, doesn't it? What a confession. What do they say? You are the Lord. You alone. That's how they begin their prayer. They begin with God. Our worship begins with God. Our prayers begin with God. It's a simple confession. They begin their prayer, and they recognize and confess together, you are the Lord, and you alone. It's a powerful meditative thought if you were to give it some thinking. One man says, we often consider ourselves the fourth person of the Trinity. That's how we pray. We come in and we recognize that God is somewhere and then we quickly move on and go somewhere else. We lack what you might call the patience in prayer. And that's what these people are about to do. They are about to slow themselves down and consider who is it that we are praying to. When we recognize that it is God on high, we do not compare. Our importance, our needs, our value, our dignity it 's nowhere in comparison to this God, and so what do they begin with? You are the Lord, and you alone, and then what do they say? You made the heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and and all that is in it it's a common reference in the old testament they they go to the what you might call the doctrine of creation. Now, let me just calm your nerves. They're, they're not here to stir up controversy. They're not trying to say it must be a six, 24-hour day, or it could have been 100 years. They're not, they're not talking about that. They're confessing something very simple. Everything owes its existence to God. You alone are the Lord, and you made it all. Everything finds its origin it's existence in God himself. It's an act. It's a, it's a work of God. There's nothing in creation that we would say is an accident. God intentionally spoke. God intentionally worked. And he brought about creation. He brings about mankind. And they have to stop. They have to slow down because they're in utter awe of this God, of the one who would make all things, and yet even them. And so they adore God. Do You do that. When you're praying, you slow down such that you stare into the face of Almighty God and just adore Him. And I want you to hear me. Just adore Him. Do, do you see what's not existent in their adoration? They're not saying, well, look at who we are. Look at what we've done. They're entirely focused on God. They are wrapped up with who he is and what he does. They cannot move on. They must acknowledge this is the one whom we pray to. And so they're confessing this, this awe, this, this work of God And as they begin to understand this is how God works, do you know what else they begin to confess about God? It's not just the working of God. It's his character. Do you see the character of your God coming down? You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram. You initiate to people. You come after them. You give them names. You give them lands. You see the affliction of our fathers. You have divided the sea and and you have led us. You protect us. He doesn't just work things of creation. He's not just powerful. Over and over they say, no, he's gracious. He is a gracious God who initiates to his people. And then there is this astounding verse in verse 17. Can't get enough of it. Look at what they say. The second half, the first half, we'll come back to it. But you are a God ready to forgive. Doesn't that cause you to slow down? God doesn't have his arms crossed. He's ready. He's not passive he's ready. He's not annoyed. He's ready. He's not frustrated. He's ready. And what is he ready for? To forgive his people. To forgive his people. And we can't read that word and just keep going. Forgiveness is not cheap. It's not free. It's extremely costly. It's very expensive. One party has to give up something. A good pra- pastor friend of mine, many of you have heard of him, Dr. Derek Thomas, he, he on multiple occasions has shared a story talking about a, a man, a professor, Nicholas Wosterstoff. What a name. He wrote a book. The title of the book is Lament of a Son. What you find out in this book is uh, his 25-year-old son went on a mountaineering trip and, and he died. And the book is, is his father wrestling through the suffering of what it's like to lose a son. And he's using the scriptures to help him put it together and understand how do I, how do I consider this? How do I think about this? Well, and on one occasion, he was about to go and teach. He was going to go teach some students. It's not his class. He was a guest lecturer. And the gentleman who was to introduce him said to him, Professor, how am I to introduce to you? What should I tell the people about you? You know what he said? Tell them I'm a man who's lost a son. That's God. He's lost a son. And he still stands ready to forgive because he's paid the ultimate price so that his people might be united and reconciled to him. He lost a son in order to forgive. You can't just read those words and keep going. He says, they say, this is not just what God does. It's who he is. He is ready to forgive. I was meditating on this fact. There's a passage in First Peter chapter five. Peter's trying to help. The people are are hurting. They're suffering. And what does he tell them? He says, it's okay. You, You might suffer for a little while. But God, he is the God of all grace. You can read that and be amazed by it. But what does that mean? What does it mean that God has all the grace? How do you put teeth on it? You read Nehemiah chapter 9. Look at what happens. Verse 18, even when they made for themselves a golden calf and said, this is your God who brought you up out of Egypt and had committed great blasphemies. You and your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. Paraphrasing here, you you led them by day and by night. You gave your good spirit, verse 20, to instruct them. You did not withhold food. You gave them drink and water. Forty years, you sustained them in the wilderness. You multiplied their children. You gave them land. You provided and protected. He's the God of all grace. And how do you know that? Because then you come down to verse 26. Nevertheless, They were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them. And what do you read? You keep going and then you pick it up in 32. Now therefore our God, the great, the mighty, and awesome, so on and so on. God is gracious. He provided for every one of their needs. And their response was the same every single time. They disobeyed. They went against him. What does it tell you? These people, they are confessing God, not in some intellectual way, but in an experiential way. They're not being forced into some liturgical confession of God, confession of faith. It's not something that they're just supposed to know. It's something that they live. They unite themselves into the people of God, to the past. This was our fathers, and we are united with them. And all that they can do is they recognize this experiential truth. This is who God is. This is how he works. He is a good and gracious God. He does not forsake his promise, his promise or his people. And so they confess who God is. And then what do they do? Well, there's this lengthy confession of sin. God is gracious and yet we the people we are disobedient. God provides we idolize. God satisfies we are self-gratifying. He protects And we return to our former ways. It's a, well, it's a biblical finger pointing. That's what it is. This is who God is, and this is who we are. This is God. This is us. This is God. This is us. They keep going back and forth. And what is the pattern? God was gracious. God was faithful. And we were failures. We continually. Over and over keep abusing his grace i don 't know where I read it uh, Someone said, Saints burn grace like jet fuel don't don't you understand don't you see this passage and you recognize this is us that God continually to show, show us his mercy, and yet all we do is we go against him it's a foundational point that you and I burn the grace of God like jet fuel. It's a, you might even say a mark of spiritual maturity when we can pray a Nehemiah 9 prayer. We recognize we are failures over and over and over again, and yet never once does God lack in being faithful, yet He is ready, and He's ready to forgive what makes this prayer so hard how do you how do you confess sin like this what makes it so powerful they're extremely honest aren't they they're extremely honest they are sincere they don't they don't say god i want to confess my many sins and thank you for your forgiveness and keep going they slow themselves down. They consider just moment by moment, what are my sins? Are you like that? I'm nothing like this. My family could attest to it. When I have wronged my family, when I'm at fault, do you know what Danny wants to do? He wants to say as sorry as quickly as he can and try to get out. I don't want my family to say, You've wronged me and let me tell you how it's made me feel. Let me help you understand the consequences, Danny, of your decision or your words or the way in which you did or did not care for us or love us. I just want to move on. I'm sorry. Can we just keep going on? I don't want to take a look at my sin. And is it because I'm just afraid that maybe I don't believe that God is still ready? Maybe I've just surpassed what grace might be. These covenantal people have a better understanding, and they slow down to consider, who are we? What have we done? How have we sinned? It's not just a few times. They're looking deep into their life. They're reflecting on their actions, and it's it's, it's terrible. You're reading it, and you're saying, who could do that? They have been redeemed and. And they go to the point in verse 17 to say what? We have voted and we have elected a leader to lead us back to Egypt. You have brought us out. They go as far as to say, and we have lacked nothing. And yet we have a leader to take us back to our enemies. They're saying, this is not just our history. This is our present. This is not just what they did. And you can see it in verse 33. They, they turn it on themselves, don't they? You have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully in what? We have, well, we have been wicked. We have acted wickedly. And then in verse 37, they begin to use the word our sins. They're considering who is God and what are we truly like? Isn't that our testimony? God, you are good. You are gracious. But I am sinful. Why is this a powerful confession? Because you read the prayer closely. They begin with God. They confess their sin. And then after that, God comes right back. God is always initiating. God is always pursuing his people. It helps you understand what 1 John is saying, that when you confess your sins, what? God is faithful or 1 John says God is faithful and just. He's not making a suggestion. He's making a statement. He is going so extreme as to say, if God does not forgive sins, he's unjust. If you have put your faith in Christ, God cannot not forgive sins. Sorry to the English majors out there. That is who God is. He is faithful and just. And the justice of God is to forgive his people because, well, he is a God who has lost the son and he stands ready, ready to forgive. And so these people, they say, God is awesome. Do you remember when Pastor Joel came up here and talked about that? It's, it's hard to think about. Awesome. It's only appropriate when you use it with God. You, you cannot use that word with other things. It's not appropriate. Food, it's not awesome. I like to say that. I, I really like to say the Braves are awesome, but we all know better now. You recognize this is a term exclusively used of God. He's awesome. He is incredible. He is greater and bigger. He keeps his promise. And how do you know that? Let me let me give you a little Hebrew lesson here. Verse 32, what do we read? Now, therefore, our God the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love. There's a Hebrew word there, it's a little one, but it means a whole lot. Hesed. Some of you have heard me talk about it before. Hesed. How does your Bible translate it? Mercy, love, steadfast love, loving kindness. It's a word that is only used of God. As said, is never used of anybody else. It's only used of God. Where do you see it show up? That powerful passage in Exodus chapter 34. Verse six. That's where God is revealing himself to Moses. He is giving Moses the law, and Moses is saying, well, tell me, who are you, and and what am I to tell the people? And he says, I said, and you know what God is saying to Moses and what the people of God are doing, don't you? And God is saying, I keep my covenant, I am steadfast in my love, and the people are using gold and making a calf. The night of their wedding, you might say. God is trying to marry his bride in a covenant, and yet his bride is running off. This is hesed. This is what you find all throughout your Old Testament. You find it in the Psalms. Nehemiah is using this word hesed because it's a surprising love. No Israelite would have thought when Moses comes down and he rebukes them for what they have done, well, God's still going to love me. He has to assure them of the covenant-keeping God. This is a God of hesed. It's a surprising love. And David's gonna add to that and he's gonna say, it's not just surprising, it's, it's steadfast. That's what he's saying in Psalm 23, verse six. What does that verse say? Surely goodness. And hesed, mercy, will follow me all the days of my life. That is God. Have you thought about that? These people have had to come to the place in which they recognize they're the object of the hesed of God. It promotes a great deal of confession. A confession of sin. Because they have a God who is ready to forgive. Now what do you do? When you when you look up and you see who God is, who he's truly like what he's truly like, and and you confess your sin, what do you do? They tell you, don't they? Verse thirty eight, a confession of commitment. Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed documents or the names of our princes, our Levites and our priests, you can See in verse or chapter ten that they begin to write their names. It's the response of a, a confession of God and sin. It's a it's a right conclusion to prayer, isn't it? When we pray unto God and we recognize who He is, it moves us to finish. God, I want to do more. I want to do something different. I want to be different. You might be saying, I don't pray prayers like this. I'm, I'm poor in prayer. Yes, that's why Nehemiah 9 is here. Because there's a vicious, vicious cycle, you might say. You're prayerless because you're poor in prayer. You're poor in prayer because you're prayerless. And what Nehemiah is saying, here's a prayer. Read these words verbatim. Lord, here's my prayer. I want to pray this to you. And they finish with a commitment, a covenant. You see the part of the covenant in verse 29 in chapter 10. Join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our Lord and his rules and his statutes. They're committing themselves. They're committing themselves to walking with God. They're committing themselves to observing, obeying the law of the Lord. That's what they've been doing over the last month. They've been reading the word. They've been worshiping. They've been fasting. They've been praying. They've been feasting. And it kind of comes to a climax, a culmination, and they say, we are going to commit ourselves wholly unto you, God. We're going to walk according to your word. This is not an emotional response. This is a convictional one. They were reading for hours a day, for nearly a month. The emotional high is gone. They recognize this is who their God is, and this is what it means to be one of his, and how we can walk with him. It's not even being done quietly, is it? They write it down. Pastor Joel talked about it a few chapters. I think it was Nehemiah 6. This is not an open letter. This is a signed letter. They put their names to it. They write it. They sign it. They seal it. This is who we're going to be, no matter the cost. John Wesley used to do something like that. Once a year, he would have his people. He'd have a... A covenant renewal service, you might say. This is something he would often do with them. This is what he had them repeat as a congregation. I am no longer my own, but thine. Put me to what thou wilt. Rank me with whom thou wilt. Put me to doing. Put me to suffering. Let me be employed for thee and laid aside for thee, exalted for thee, or brought low for thee. Let me be full. Let me be empty. Let me have all things. Let me have nothing. I freely and heartily yield all things to thy pleasure and disposal. And now, O glorious and blessed God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, thou art mine and I am thine, so be it. And the covenant which I have made on earth, let it be ratified in heaven. Amen. That's what the people are doing. That's, that's what they're doing. That's been their history. Anytime something significant's about to happen, they, they have this covenant renewal service. Joshua chapter 24, they're about to enter into the promised land. They make a covenant with God. First Samuel 12, there's a covenant being had between God and his people. I'm gonna set up your throne. So they have a, they have a renewal service. They're doing something here. They must understand that something significant is about to happen. Perhaps it's just a clarity. Perhaps it's just a refreshment of the grace of God. But what is most interesting is what it's founded upon. They're saying, we commit ourselves to you. We're going to make a covenant with God, not because we have finally figured it out. They're making a covenant with God in response to his covenant with them. It's a reaction. It's a response to. They recognize it's all by God's grace. They are not saying to God, we're going to do better. Get ready. They have just confessed there is no such thing as doing better. There's only depending on him. And so they make this commitment, this covenant to say, because of your grace, we want to obey. That's the gospel. And we have to be clear on that. As soon as we reverse it, that self-righteousness, we've totally missed the point. How do you understand it? You understand grace. You go back to God of all grace. You see people who understand grace the best work hardest at obedience. They can't help it because they recognize who it is that gave them grace. Who stands ready to forgive. Is that you this morning? Do you recognize this God of all grace? That you are that you are ready and willing to commit yourself, whatever the cost. It's not cool to be a Christian. You're not going to further your professional status. It's extremely costly. It's expensive to say, "I believe in God and even more, I believe in his word, that it's authoritative that it's inerrant, it's infallible, it's holy. I believe in that. Are you ready, no matter what the cost, to say, I will follow you. And not because I figured it out, but because you have promised yourself to me in covenant. There's a revival every Lord's day. That's what he is saying. That's what the people of God are saying here. Do you want to be revived by God? You come into worship. You confess who he is. You confess sin, and you leave with a confession of commitment. I want to commit myself to you. There might be a lot of things that we need, but what Nehemiah is saying is what you need more than anything else is truth. You will never need less of it. We laugh at the quarter of the day reading. Perhaps that's something to consider. Just sitting and letting God's word come to you. You never need less truth. You and I always need more of it. May we be a church like that who begins with the confession of who God is, that it would rightly lead us to a confession of sin. Who are we? And yet we respond to that grace by saying, we'll commit ourselves to you, O Lord. And by grace, we will work hard to obey. Let me pray. Our God and our Father, we recognize this text this morning. It's uh, it's good. It's hard. I think maybe, perhaps, even my own soul is willing to say, "But that's that's costly, and I don't know if I can do it." How could you ask of me in that manner? Yet, O Lord. Who am I to speak to you about cost? For you have given the greatest cost one could imagine, yourself. You gave your son, and in the giving of your son, you have bound yourself to promise to us that if we would but believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, we would be saved. I do pray for us this morning that that would be the truth of our life. The great Charles Spurgeon would always say, the job of the pastor is the first wear the sermon. Lord, this is a sermon we all need to wear. One in which we confess who you are. We confess our sin. and We are reminded of your grace and therefore confess our commitment. So would you help us, O Lord, no matter the cost, to be true to your word. And all this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.